This is episode 97 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear the great Houdini broadcasts. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 97. If you recall, back during season four, episode 72, I presented a show called The Devil and Harry Keller. It was a short story that I had written that I turned into an old-style radio drama, and it got a huge response from the listeners, and I've been wanting to do another one ever since then, but I wasn't quite sure what to do. Then along came this booklet, which actually, in all truth, I already owned this booklet, but I just never really looked through it. And it was called The Great Houdini Broadcasts by Val Andrews and was published by Mickey Hades. Reading through it, I realized it would make an ideal old-style radio drama, except it had a copyright on it and I couldn't just do it. I needed to get permission. So thankfully, Mickey Hades' son gave me permission to do this on my podcast. I was given a non-commercial license, and as I don't charge for the podcast, this works perfectly. Uh, It would have been great if I had this out a few days ago, but things never quite work out the way you want. Um, At least you'll be getting to hear it today. Before we get there, however, I have to tell you about the coolest video that I just watched. Over on Jim Steinmeier's website, which is jimsteinmeier.com, on his blog, he has a three-part series on the Will, the Witch, and the Watchman, which is the old Masculine and Cook magic play. Apparently, a few years back, they recreated this routine for the LA Conference on Magic History, and there is a video of the entire performance, and oh my gosh, I love this. John Carney was in it, and his he's magnificent. He is absolutely magnificent in, in his role. He kind of reminds me like of Tim, Tim Conway. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Tim Conway was kind of a comedy inspiration for John Carney. But anyway, the other actors are wonderful as well, but the, the play really focuses on this one character that John plays. It's well worth watching. So if you don't do it now, but after the podcast, go to Jim's blog and check out the performance video of The Will, The Witch, and The Watchman. It is great. Uh, More of our wonderful magic friends have recently passed. Uh, Dick Gustafson, Tom Craven, Carl Fulves, and David Burgless. Rest in peace, one and all. If you haven't already done so, you're missing out. I'm talking about buying your very own Magic Detective t-shirt. I've decided to go ahead and keep the sale going for another week, so um, mainly because I didn't really announce the t-shirt sale until the middle of October last month. So the t-shirts are on sale still, so you can grab one while you can. They're still available, or they will still be available after the sale. It's just the price goes back to the normal uh, price. And I know I've sold a few already, and I'm hoping to sell more as uh, the proceeds help to support the podcast. I will admit the proceeds are rather minuscule, but every dollar or 
in this case, every penny helps. Uh, you can get your Magic Detective t-shirt by going to magichistorian.com. That's magichistorian.com. And now, sit back and enjoy the great Houdini broadcasts. November 1st, 1926. This is the Western Eagle Broadcasting Company of America. The program you just heard came to you courtesy of Guanaco Cigars. They look good, they taste good, and they satisfy. We interrupt today's broadcast to bring you a newsflash. We regret to report the death in Detroit Hospital, Michigan, the world-famous escape artist and magician Houdini. Following an emergency operation which failed to save his life, Houdini died of peritonitis caused by a blow to the stomach delivered by a McGill University student whilst the magician was performing at Montreal's Princess Theatre. After inquiring if it were true that the magician could withstand heavy blows in the abdominal region, the student took Houdini's assent to mean that he might try. The show went on despite Houdini being in great pain. His wife, Bessie, was at the bedside and claims that his dying wish was that the student's name should not be revealed. In a few moments, we will be bringing you an unscheduled program, a tribute to the man who mystified the world for so many years. The makers of Choosy Cheese Spread have kindly donated their airtime. So choose Choosy. Houdini escaped from jails, straitjackets, handcuffs, and even from a locked box thrown deep into untamed waters. He accepted all challenges and dares, yet even he could not escape the consequences of a ruptured appendix caused by a blow that he was not tense to withstand. No surgeon's skill could save him. Houdini has been in the news for so long, there can scarcely be a man, woman, or child in the civilized world who has not heard of his daring exploits. Born Eric Weiss of immigrant parents, he rose to theater stardom through many years as a modest carnival attraction. Then, just before the turn of the century, he gained fame in America following a tour of Europe, escaping from London, Paris, and Berlin jails, as well as performing unheard feats of magic. In fact, for the past 30 years, he has constantly been in the news. In later years, he waged a ceaseless war on fraudulent spirit mediums and bunko artists of all kinds. He was the author of many books on magic, including the famous Unmasking of Robert Houdin, in which he exposed his own boyhood idol as a fraud. Much is known of Houdini, the public figure, but what of Houdini the man, the boy, the husband, the private citizen. Although he came into contact with thousands, he had few close friends. In a very limited time available, we have been able to assemble a few people who knew him well. First, to tell a little about his friend and associate is one of Houdini's legal advisors, Hiram P. Kelson. The untimely death of my friend and client, Harry Houdini, has been a terrible blow to me. He was a fine man, a wonderful artist, and above all, a great and patriotic American. Everyone will know of his efforts in the bond-selling drive of the Great War in 1917. Yet earlier, he had struck a blow for decency and freedom by taking the Kaiser's court to task and making them look ridiculous when they accused him of belittling their impregnable prison, so-called Bessie is too grief-stricken to speak to you at this time, but if she were here, she would tell you what a wonderful husband he was, and everyone knows how much he loved his dear mother. In fact, it is true to say that he was never quite the same after her death. 
He had the satisfaction of knowing that he made up to her in some measure for her early deprivations. It is said, and I don't doubt it for one minute, that he once caused the theater management to pay him in gold pieces so that he could shower them into his mother's outstretched apron. And shortly before her death, he bought for her an actual dress worn by the English Queen Victoria. Although not tall, he had a wonderful physique, a fine example of any red-blooded American boy. Did you know that he was the first man to fly an aeroplane across Australia? Everyone will know about his campaign against those fiends who prey upon the bereaved with fake spirit messages. His rise to fame from an obscure immigrant background can but emphasize the greatness of our country. Only in America, my friends, could a success like that of Houdini happen. The whole nation will join me in mourning the passing of this fine man who never smoked, drank, and to whom clean living was just a way of life. Thank you indeed, Mr. Kelson. Now, here are a few words of tribute from the magician's brother, also a featured vaudeville player, Theodore Hardeen. Actually, very few people know that I am the brother of Harry Houdini, believing Hardeen the Mysterious to be a professional rival of his. In a way, I was. You see, at one time, Harry's imitators became a pain in the uh, neck to him. They were getting time on theaters that Harry was too big to play. So he figured, to keep it in the family, he built me up so that I could play those theaters as if in rivalry with him. But it was not only for this reason that Harry fixed it. He figured that I could fare well financially, and in turn, I was content to play second fiddle, producing, I boast, a quite acceptable tune. When our father died, he made Harry promise to look after us all, and he certainly did. Both were men of their word. Let me give you an example. When Harry was maybe eight or nine years old of age, uh, he became fascinated with performers at the carnival and spent a lot of time practicing not only magic but acrobatic tricks and truly amazing stunts. For a boy, he was a wonderful performer, calling himself Eric the Great. He ran away from home to join the carnival, but it had left town and he walked many, many miles trying to find it. He grew tired and hungry. Eventually, he was cold and lost and dirty, too. It was in this sorry state that he knocked at the door of a little clapboard house, the home of a lady called Mrs. Flitcroft. She was a widow and amazed to be confronted by the apparition who claimed to be the great Eric. Uh, he told her that he was not begging, but that he would perform for her feats of magic, uh, and for, for good measure, he would pick up pins with his eyelids if she would give him a glass of milk and a piece of cake. Mrs. Flitcroft, of course, fed and rested him, after first gravely watching his performance. Something about his manner told her to play it that way, and when he departed the next day, he was clean, rested, and carrying enough of Mrs. Flitcroft's pies and cakes to last him for days. Years later, he repaid that debt by buying Mrs. Flitcroft's house and handing her the deed as a gift. 
That's the kind of guy my brother was. Now, Papa. The Rabbi Weiss was an extraordinary man, too. When he caught up with runaway Harry, he did not beat or scold him, but made a deal. He said, Eric, if I do not oppose your becoming an artist when you are older, will you return with me now to finish your schooling and learn a trade? When Harry left school, he worked in a tie factory. You may notice the, that I hesitate when I call him Harry. That's Bess's name for him and the world's. To me, he was always Eric. At the tie factory, he met a guy called Jacob Hyman. With him, he started a sort of double act featuring the trunk escape or metamorphosis. Later, he worked with me and, I, and we called ourselves the Brothers Houdini. Uh, when Bessie came on the scene, I kind of bowed out, and so the act became the Houdinis, Harry and Bess. The rest is theater history. Those who never knew Eric had no idea what kind of unusual man he was. He could be strange at times. For example, I remember once in the early days when he took Bessie and I onto a bridge at midnight. It was strange and an eerie occasion. He said, Bessie, Dash, he always called me Dash, never Theo, will you both swear to be true to me and support me in all my endeavors? Then he made us raise our right hands like we were in court, but we were glad to do it, though that story will give you some idea of how strange he could be. Thank you, Theo Hardeen. Listeners, choose choosy cheese spread and make a snack, just like a banquet. We are indeed fortunate to have in the studio the famous British author, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, to pay his own tribute to Houdini, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. When I learned of the death of my friend Harry Houdini, I was deeply shocked. Although we had crossed words on a particular issue, we were in fact the best of friends. He was the sort of chap I could get along with, what we British call a rough diamond. I often dined with him when he was in London or when, as now, I was in America. Usually, he would bring his charming little wife, Bess, short for Elizabeth, I suppose. To be safe, I always called her Mrs. Houdini. I extend to her my sympathy, hoping that in time, the great healer will soften the blow. But to return to those meetings with Houdini, we would sit after dinner for many hours, discussing such subjects as the afterlife, spiritualism, and the occult. Now, Houdini always claimed his disbelief, complete disbelief in the power of a spirit to return. I took him to seances by Mrs. Duncan and other famous mediums, where we saw and where we heard that which proved beyond a doubt that the spirits were called upon. But he would invent cock-and-bull stories about faked apparatus and all manner of unlikely deceptions. He would show me all manner of gadgets that would produce the same effects, yet failed entirely to prove to me that these had been used. In fact, on one occasion, he proved to me that he was himself a powerful medium. 
by rubbing ash on his bare arms and producing there a crudely lettered spirit message, signed by my very own aunt, whose name he did not even know. Now, I'm not a gullible sort of chappy. Remember, I had Dr. Joseph Bell, upon whom I modeled Sherlock Holmes, as a tutor. So you can imagine it would be a clever charlatan indeed who could fool me. No, for some reason best known to himself, Houdini wanted people to believe that he gained his miracles by ordinary methods of a stage illusionist. Yet I am totally convinced that he was one of the truly gifted psychics who could dematerialize and materialize his body at will. How else could he have escaped from prison cells and locked boxes? I personally examined some of the restraints, and even Sherlock Holmes himself would have declared them to be free from deception. At the very next seance I attend, I shall call upon the spirit of Houdini, who, in the afterlife, without ulterior motive, will admit the truth. Thank you, Sir Arthur. That was very illuminating. But what of Houdini's professional colleagues? What did the other magicians think of him? Listen now to the voice of the royal illusionist, Horace Golden. So you want I should say a few words about Harry Houdini? Well, I don't like to speak bad about the man what had died already. But to me, Houdini was nothing but a carnival worker what made good. Dime Museum Harry, I used to call him. And, well, to me, he was just that. Right to the end. You see, Houdini had no refinement like what I got. Always he was attacking others. This book he wrote, The Unmasking of Robert Houdin. He wrote this because Houdin's relatives refused to see him. And as for this crusade against fake spirit mediums and bunko artists, how did he know so much about their methods? I will tell you. Because he used those methods himself in his early days to hoodwink the widows and cage the bereaved. I tell you, at one time there was nothing he and Bessie would not stoop to. Then, when he got into the big time, half of his escapes were the result of over-imaginative reporting. And when he made the elephant to vanish at the New York Hippodrome, it took two men to wheel the box on stage and a dozen to wheel it off the stage. Now, if you want to see a good illusion, a real miracle, in fact, there is my sawing a woman in half. Now there, it really is a miracle. Thank you, Mr. Golden. Time marches on, and listeners will appreciate that opinions expressed by contributors to this program are entirely their own and not necessarily those of the Western Eagle Broadcasting Company. We asked Howard Thurston, the Dean of American Magicians, to contribute to this program. Unfortunately, Mr. Thurston is indisposed, but has sent us instead his protege, and the man he intends to make his successor, Mr. Harry Jansen. In contributing to this program, I would first like to express my condolences to Mrs. Bessie Houdini in this her hour of sorrow. He was a great showman, someone I could admire. He could take a simple effect and turn it into a miracle. 
the trick of swallowing razor blades or needles and then bringing them back to his mouth threaded in intervals is the oldest in the book, yet Houdini stopped shows with it. May I use the phrase with which I end every performance? Sim Salabim. Gather your flowers among the living and keep smiling as you do it. Harry would have liked it that way. Thank you, Mr. Jansen. And for the benefit of the listeners, I must say you look every inch a magician. No man is a hero to his valet. We don't believe that Houdini ever had one. But here is someone who worked for him as an assistant. Now a well-known magician himself, Mr. J. Palmer. Did I tell you about the time I fooled the great Houdini? I was showing a card trick to one of his other assistants, Jim Vickery, then I suddenly realized that I was being watched by Houdini himself. He said, great, Jay, I have no idea how you did that. Imagine, the great Houdini fooled by one of my card tricks. Now, they tell me he's left a locked box to be opened 50 years from now. I probably won't be around then, but... I sure would like to be. I liked him a lot. He was a great guy, and I enjoyed working for him. Thank you, Jay Palmer. And what of Houdini's secrets, listeners? How could he escape from a locked box cast deep into the Hudson? How could he possibly walk through a solid brick wall that had been built right there on stage before our eyes? The answers to these and other questions may or may not be in that locked box, if indeed it exists at all. My friends, I hope you've enjoyed this little retrospective of the life of the late Harry Houdini. And that, my friends, was the Great Houdini Broadcasts, written by Val Andrews, published by Mickey Hades, all the voices done by me, Dean Carnegie. Uh, The manuscript was published back in 1981, and as I mentioned, I had to get permission to create this broadcast, which they thankfully granted to me. I did make a couple subtle changes to the script, very, very subtle. Uh, There is a a second part to the script that takes place in 1976. I chose not to do that part of the manuscript. Um, Instead, just leave it with the 1926 section. And there is one other thing I wanted to mention, and that's the last gentleman that appeared on the broadcast, Jay Palmer. Well, it turns out that Jay Palmer was a real magician and uh, did work for Houdini. He, um, he, later in life, he performed with his wife, Jay Palmer and Doreen. They had an act together. But when he worked for Houdini, uh, it was the, at the time that Houdini was uh, showing the film The Man from Beyond, and Jay performed magic along with the movie in the mid-Atlantic states, as Houdini often had a magic show that accompanied the movies. So that was, uh, and prior to that, uh, Jay Palmer, I hope I didn't say Jay Marshall, Jay Palmer uh, also worked for the great Leon. So he has a little bit of history there in the magic world, and I decided to go ahead and keep him. I was going to change him because I was like, Jay Palmer, who's that? I've never heard of him before. But um, as it turned out, he was a real individual. So I uh, hope you enjoyed that. I really, um, uh, most of the information in, the, in that particular manuscript was accurate. And a couple things that are a little loose on the history, the gold coin things, I think. Um, Dante did not like Houdini, but uh, because he was speaking for Thurston, I went ahead and left the positive part in there. Um, 
I'd love to hear your feedback on this. It was uh, fun to do and put together. Hope you enjoyed it. And before I go, let me mention once again, the Magic Detective t-shirts are still on sale for at least another week. And if you haven't already gotten a t-shirt, please grab one or two while they are on sale. Just go to magichistorian.com to get your t-shirt. And that, my friends, is going to do it for episode 97. Man, we are awfully close to the 100th episode. I should probably do something special for then, too, but uh, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thanks for listening, and please be well and stay safe.